This is Attention Humans, the podcast of the University of Colorado Consortium for Climate Change and Health. Each episode, we explore the human dimensions of climate change with some of the leading experts at the University of Colorado and beyond. I'm Jake Fox. I'm Cameron Nicewander. We're your hosts for the show. It is our goal to help you, our listeners, learn about the health consequences of global warming. And ask you to get involved in personal and political efforts to slow climate change. As always, please check out our webpage, cuconsortium.org slash podcast, for episode summaries, show notes, and our comment box. Without further ado, on to the show. And this long line of cars is all because of you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Attention Humans. Today, we are excited to sit down with Dr. Rosemary Rochford. Dr. Rochford earned her PhD at UC Irvine and is currently a professor in the Department of Immunology and Microbiology at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Her research interests include climate-sensitive vector-borne diseases such as malaria. She's also the director of the CU Consortium for Climate Change and Health. Did we uh, miss anything important in your biography? Nope. uh, I think you got everything right there. A native Coloradoan, actually. I'll just throw that in there. Oh, I like that. That's that's important, uh, seeing as many of our listeners are here in Colorado. So, Dr. Rochford, uh, we like to kick these interviews off with Mm -hmm. this question. How much trouble are we in? Well, I think that's a great question, and um, it's not good. I think the, the answer is the climate's warming up, and um, we are in trouble, right? And we're in trouble right now. So I think that one of the things that's important for people to understand is how much trouble we're in, and is the trouble just for the planet? You know, if things are warmer, who cares? Um, summers are nicer, maybe a little hotter. Winters aren't as bad. But it's the health aspect that makes us worry, right? That That's what brings it home to... What happens to us? Yeah, I think I, I really appreciated your comment, too, in, in the beginning of that, and, and to say that, you know, this is this is a right now thing. And I think so much of our work in, in kind of the, the realm of climate and health is to take this from a future far off, maybe our children or grandchildren will be in trouble, to uh, we're seeing effects right now. Exactly. But for somebody who has a grandchild and another one on the way, it also is imperative for us to think about sort of the next generations and what do we do? Because if we don't take care of the problems we're creating now, then we've got real trouble. So let's dive into that. How is your work relevant to the intersection of climate change and health? So in some ways, uh, so I work on malaria. Um, I'm really studying, I I have a research program based in Kenya, and I'm interested in how malaria affects, uh, how people develop immunity to the malaria. And then um, out of that, right, so that has nothing to do with climate change, but malaria is a disease transmitted by a, a mosquito. Um, and a particular type of mosquito called an Anopheles mosquito. So there's three different main types of mosquitoes, but the Anopheles, um, we used to have them here in the U.S. We wiped them out. But in Africa, they're the ones that carry the parasite called plasmodium that transmits malaria. And mosquitoes are very sensitive to temperature. And um, so that's sort of where I come into it from and just being a curious scientist and saying, I'm, what's going on with this and climate change? So I have to confess that my work is not directly... I'm studying climate change impact on disease, but I'm studying a climate-sensitive disease. Got it. So it sounds like climate change, particularly the temperature aspect of climate change, may affect uh, the mosquito life cycle. Mosquitoes 
carry some of these diseases like malaria. Correct. And so um, out of that work, I've gotten much more interested. And so now we're actually beginning a project, I hope, um, in Ghana as well. So um, if you think about things that are, when you say vector-borne, to bring it down to sort of the general level, vectors are anything that they carry a disease, an infection. So um, ticks carry Lyme disease. Uh, get bit by a tick, you can get Lyme disease. Not any tick and not the ticks in Colorado, but ticks can do that. Um, mosquitoes can carry Zika virus and dengue and chikungunya virus. And Anopheles mosquitoes carry um, plasmodium, which causes malaria. Thank you for kind of that overview. Um, I think, as you mentioned, you know, we, we don't have malaria really in the United States unless, of course, somebody's brought it back. Why, why is malaria a problem? Well, malaria causes, actually, um, the numbers are coming down, but it, it's uh, about a half a million deaths a year, which is about uh, a person a minute dying of malaria. So that's a problem. And the worry is, is as things get warmer, does that affect how these mosquitoes live? And there's another important aspect of the, the virus or the parasite that lives inside the mosquito. It's a thing called extrins extrinsic incubation potential, EIP. So that's a fancy word, but what it means is that when that, when that mosquito picks and bites somebody that's infected with malaria and picks up the blood, and they have the, the parasite inside that, the parasite has to actually replicate and make more of itself inside the mosquito, and then it carries it to somebody else. And that parasite so is affected by the temperature of the mosquito as well. So if the mosquito's living a long time, then the parasite has enough time to make itself more of itself to be able to transmit. If it's super cold and the mosquito, we know mosquitoes don't do well in the cold, then the parasite can't replicate and it can't transmit. So you can begin to start thinking about this potential is as it gets warmer, the mosquitoes live longer um, and the parasite is growing more and they can transmit better. So that's why we worry about uh, climate impact on these uh, uh, diseases carried by mosquitoes. Yeah, so, so in other words, uh, as global temperatures warm, mosquitoes will have more opportunity to spread these parasites to humans, making, exactly. making us sick. Exactly, parasites and virus. And I actually, but the, the, the challenge is, is trying to understand, so um, when we study uh, climate-sensitive diseases, right, we want to, and this is, this is clearly a climate-sensitive disease, but we also have interventions for these diseases. So I say, is climate change going to make us have more malaria? And the answer is, it's complicated, right? We don't, we can't, there's not a good mathematical formula. So for example, in the highlands of Kenya that are getting warmer, the mosquitoes are living longer, there's greater chance for transmission. So there's some uh, studies there. But if it gets too hot, so the mosquitoes also have a temperature zone, the mosquitoes might not survive, you know, we have, you know, when you were talking about places that are getting up to 115, 120, 125 degrees Fahrenheit and, and becoming more um, desert-like, the malaria is probably going to go down because the mosquitoes aren't going to survive. So it's not like a one-size-fits-all. And then the other thing is, when we think about this, we have interventions, right? So how do those interventions help us deal with these climate-sensitive diseases and the mosquito-borne diseases? And that's another thing that maybe climate change will impact it, but if humans also develop um, uh, things to a vaccine for malaria, which people are working very hard on, a vaccine for dengue, then it won't be as much of an issue other than mosquito bites, which I don't like. That's why I like living in Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Um, so we've kind of focused, focused very much on, you know, one community that is already susceptible to malaria. What can we say about climate change as it affects kind of the distribution of vector-borne disease? That's a great question. <clears throat> I just happened to bring a paper that was just published, um, actually by a good friend of mine, Sadie Ryan, who's a professor down in um, 
uh, University of Florida. And um, the title of her paper is Global Expansion and Redistribution of 80s Born Virus Transmission Risk with Climate Change, which is a mouthful. Um, yeah, I reached for the cowbell. I was, no, they're going to reach for the cowbell, <laughs> but the answer is I'm going to explain. I had to read the title. Okay, okay. <laughs> so I told you that there's a number of mosquitoes that carry diseases. Anopheles is the type of mosquito that carries malaria. Aedes is the type of mosquito that carries dengue and Zika and chikungunya. And Aedes is what we call it. It's kind of like, a, I heard somebody call it the cockroach of mosquitoes. Um, it can live anywhere. It breeds anywhere. It's just, it's a hardy little um, critter. Um, <laughs> and, and what it does is, is this is the one that brought, was brought over in tires. Um, we talked about the tiger mosquito. That's actually in another type of it. But the 80s is... Um, spread around the world to places it didn't used to be. And with that spread, it's bringing um, the viruses with it. So uh, we know like in Puerto Rico, uh, we have an outbreak of dengue there. And the, it sort of was preceded um, before the dengue came, the mosquitoes came and are setting up shop. And in this country, um, through the 40s and 50s, we were spraying DDT everywhere. Um, which wiped out the, the Anopheles mosquitoes that carry malaria. So that's why we used to have malaria in the U.S., but it's gone. And now we have good public health, so it doesn't have a chance to come back. That's the key in all of this is public health. Um, but the 80s, um, after that Zika outbreak, um, uh, actually another good colleague of ours and friend, Mary Hayden, showed um, with some work at uh, National Center for Atmospheric Research that um, she could predict the distribution of the 80s in the um, southwest and um, Florida. The temperatures are just right for that now. And um, so we sort of start worrying about distribution of those and how they're going to start spreading. And it's really this junk, the cockroach mosquito, if we could call it that. The, it's just a, it's a junkyard mosquito. It'll go anywhere, it'll breed anywhere, and it'll bite anywhere. And it's a day biter, and that was what makes it even harder. So it gets and bites you during the day. So it's hard to protect yourself. If it's hot and humid, who wants to wear long pants and long sleeves? If it's hot and humid, who wants to spray themselves? Uh, the one that carries malaria is a night biter, so you can put screens on your windows, bed nets, um, so it's easier to avoid it, but the 80s uh, mosquito, the, our cockroach one, is really tough to prevent. So it sounds like some, some of the kind of transportation of this mosquito is, is due to man-made reasons, right? Cool. We have we shipping containers and, and these kinds of things, and they come along for the ride and tires. Um, what, the role that climate plays into that, is that just giving it a home once it's arrived? Yes, Right. So, and that's a that's a great question. So, um, so it gets transported. Can it survive? Right. What's the temperature right? And is the humidity right? Is there enough water for them? Is there environment? So we can think about. Um, so, because I said they're junk, they mosquitoes need water to lay their eggs in. But these guys can lay their eggs in the side of a, a container um, that doesn't have water. And then when the water comes in, those eggs can survive for, ooh, I can't remember exactly, but say at, at least half a year. So a long time, and so when the rains come, then all of a sudden the water comes and fills it up, the mosquitoes, there they are. So um, the spread is uh, affected by containers that people have in their yard that fill up, and, and paradoxically that there tends to be more uh, outbreaks of dengue when there's a drought, and you say, well, that doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. But people tend to store water when there's a drought, and then that water containers are sources of breeding for the mosquitoes. Yeah, so we, we've talked... Um on this show about the role that precipitation plays in climate change and how it's, it's kind of a trickier model to parse out, but 
does that bring any changes to the to the distribution and the effects of malaria? Oh, that's a great question. So the mosquito, um, uh, mosquitoes in general are affected by not only temperature, what temperature, too cold they don't live, too hot they don't live, um, so it has to be the Goldilocks at temperature, um, but also um, humidity, right? You don't want things to desiccate them, so it might get warmer in some places, but if it's drier, it might not be good for mosquitoes, right? So that's uh, humidity and precipitation. They're kind of closely linked together. Um, and you can think if you have, uh, say the rainy season is, extends longer than it used to, that's going to be a longer time for the mosquitoes to survive. So that would be where I would think about precipitation a little bit um, differently, right? Not so much the amount of precipitation, but the length of the year that you get precipitation. Yeah. And that, that could be worth unpacking a little bit, especially when we hear global warming, we don't think longer rainy season right. quite intuitively. Can you help us with that a little bit? Well, you could sort of say when we think about, um, for example, uh, people have heard about the El Nino, right? And this is this right now, and I think we're in an El Nino event where the southern hemisphere and the oceans are warmer. And um, during those events, the the rainfall uh, is different, right? So um, again, in areas like um, Africa and Kenya, you have the long rains and the short rains, right? But now the short rains are actually being longer period of time. So seasonality changes, right? So it's when the rains come and how long they last is actually being affected by climate change now, um, which is a real problem. Because if you're depending on crops and you sort of count on when the when season starts and it's shifting, how do you adjust for that when you're a subsistence farmer? So you just went over a distribution of some mosquito-borne diseases. Another piece of susceptibility to these uh, mosquito-borne or vector-borne diseases is, as you mentioned, the public health infrastructure. Right. How will climate change affect the public health infrastructure that currently protects us from vector-borne diseases? So in this country, actually, um, we do a great job of, of surveillance. Since it's not here, if somebody has a fever and they don't understand and the mosquitoes, um, it's, you can catch it and treat it and, and prevent somebody from being the victim for the next mosquito bite to transmit it to another person. But it really relies on good uh, infrastructure. So. Um, public health infrastructure is the thing that we sort of don't pay attention to and we really should and appreciate. Um, but I'll give you a story down in um, Ecuador on the border there, and this was a study by um, Lindsay Kreischer, who's a, actually now a graduate student in the School of Public Health um, for her PhD or DRPH. And she studied on the border between Ecuador and Peru how they were able to eliminate malaria there just by good surveillance and treatment, right? So um, those are the key things. Malaria, we have treatment for. Um, we don't have a vaccine, but we're working on it. Uh, dengue, we don't have a treatment for it, right? So you get sick with dengue, there's no anti, nothing, nothing we can give you to keep, get you better. And that's a real problem, right? So the, the real public health piece doesn't fall into play as much there because we can't, we can't cure you of it yet. So we've been kind of dancing around this topic of... of um, malaria popping up in various places around the world. And you mentioned Florida, and you mentioned kind of the southeast part of the United States. Right. But how, how does climate change change the way that we see malaria in this country? Um, for malaria, probably not much. I don't think. Um, there's risk maps, so people are looking. You know, we have predictions and models. So if the temperature goes up one degree, two degrees, three degrees, we, well, we hope it doesn't go up that much. But how does that affect where the mosquito can live? And it clearly can change its ability to thrive here uh, in the U.S. Um, and really reestablish itself. Um, but I always say that's why it's complicated, because I think as long as we keep the infrastructure, and this is why it's important to know what might be coming so we can adapt, right? This is adaptation and mitigation to climate change. In this country, for malaria, it's going to be fairly um, easy, 
if our everything's okay and, and public health stays in place. But in other places, no, right? Um, but then in places where malaria is endemic, a little change in temperature isn't going to change it because it's already established there, right? So we're really looking at the edges of where it can go and making sure that it doesn't get there. So um, thinking about um, uh, making sure, I'm not saying this quite right, but thinking about how do we prevent the spread of the mosquito or the spread of the parasite that is in the mosquito. And that's really public health. I mean, luckily we have the anti-malarials to treat mm-hmm. malaria um, in this country. And then, But you mentioned in terms of like dengue or we've talked a little bit about West Nile in the past. Oh, you know, West Nile's a real problem. These right? things are going to be a little harder for us to control. Yeah, so... Um, West Nile has already come in and swept through. It's not as big as problem in Colorado. If we think about who's susceptible to these diseases, right, that's really the question is if it sort of sweeps through and it started spreading its, its territory. The, the people, um, young, the very young don't have as good of immune system. It's still developing, and I'm talking about the, like the under fours, under twos. Um, and then as you get older, your immune system doesn't do well, and, and I'm speaking of the the sort of the really old, not not uh, the 60-year-old. That's a that's true for a lot of infectious diseases, not just these vector-borne diseases. Can you help us to understand the health effects of malaria? How does it how does it hurt us? Oh, well, <clears throat> so not to get into too long of a lecture because I am a professor, but <laughs> um, there's there's four species of, of malaria, but the one that's the the worst one is this one called Plasmodium falciparum, and that's the one that's in Africa that's that that is the most lethal. And that one, what it can do is is that um, you get repeated infections with it. So it's a very clever little parasite because it can change its coat. So then your immune system has a hard time fighting it off. And it also affects our ability to fight it off. And so you have to get infected with it many, many times. And what it does is it gets into your red blood cells. Um, And when it gets into red blood cells, the red blood cells then blow up, right? So you get anemia, right? Very severe anemia when you get infected with malaria. And without red blood cells, you have no oxygen. No oxygen, not good. Um, It can also cause um, cerebral malaria, and it causes uh, um, uh, comas and convulsions um, and long-term effects. And then um, uh, acute respiratory problems. So it's it's a fairly serious. You can have mild uh, uh, anemia or loss of red blood cells to more severe and and, and life threatening and obviously, so it's it's pretty pretty bad. And if when I go to Kenya, I take my antimalarials because the first time I get it and I never want to get it, it would be very bad. Thanks for going through some of those manifestations of malaria in humans. Um, part of this podcast is putting a human face on climate change. Can you also talk about some of those other vector-borne diseases we discussed? So what are the symptoms of, of dengue, of West Nile virus, for example? Um, dengue is known as breakbone fever. Um, so if you think about what that means, it feels like your bones are breaking. That's not a good thing. Um, uh, and so you can get a high fever. You can get rash with dengue. Um, you can have long-term sequelae, uh, long-term effects. Um, and it also, it can cause um, what's called dengue hemorrhagic fever. And that's if you get infected with one type of dengue. There's a four different types that are out there. You get infected with one and then get infected with a different type. You can get what's called dengue hemorrhagic fever, which is causes hemorrhage, loss of blood. Um, and that's really bad. Um, and that affects actually very young children. Um, chikungunya um, definitely got problems with the bones and arthritis and, again, long-term problems with that. Um, 
Zika, we know about the birth defects that are, are linked to that and why that is is sort of still under, we know that the, the virus gets into the brain, but why it was so bad in Brazil, we're still trying to sort of sort that out. And then uh, West Nile virus, because we, we have seen cases in Colorado right. before. Mostly um, fevers, uh, mild fevers can be sort of or as, uh, without symptoms, no, no evidence, or neurologic problems. And that's where the severity comes in. And that's typically in the, in the elderly um, that have the serious neurologic problems. Right. That's the, in air quotes, West Nile encephalitis. Right. Okay. Encephalitis, thinking about the brain being inflamed. That's a hothead, but not in a good way. Yeah. Dr. Rochford, you mentioned that malaria is a treatable disease. We have anti-malarials that mm-hmm. we give to people to um, treat them. However, we have this problem in medicine with uh, resistance, uh, particularly with bacteria in the United mm-hmm. States. But is this an issue as well with parasites? Oh, it's a huge issue, right? How will that so, change? Um, well, I don't know how it's going to change, but I know what we're working on. So chloroquine was the drug of choice for malaria, and that they developed a, the parasite developed resistance to that. In the 2000s, they developed a, a drug, artesanate and um, artemisinin, and, um, and they do a, a, a treatment with that. Um, there's evidence that there's resistance now developing in Cambodia, and so what's the next generation of anti-malarial drugs, right, and who's working on it? So there's actually... Uh, a lot of great organizations, so the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is funding a lot of that. Um, Medicine for Malaria Ventures funding that. The U.S. military works on that uh, quite a bit. Um, so people, are, and then also academic scientists, but um, sort of trying to develop new anti-malarials to stay one step ahead of them. Um, and that's that's a challenge. Yeah. So Dr. Rochford, we spoke about a few vector-transmitted or vector-borne diseases, dengue, West Nile virus, Zika virus, Lyme disease. Will any of these reach Colorado, or are we at risk for them here? The good news is we're, we're safe for now. So <laughs> um, Colorado, so as we worry about climate change impact on the health of Coloradoans, probably vector-borne diseases is low on the list. Um, Lyme disease, the tick that carries that, is not here. Um, so uh, it doesn't mean it can't come here, but it's not here yet. The mosquito that carries West Nile is here, but it seems to be fairly well controlled, but we have uh, seasonal outbreaks of that, and that's transmitted by a mosquito called Culex um, species. And then um, we don't have the Aedes. There's a little teeny tiny pocket in somewhere, in, um, but there's no Aedes mosquitoes or Anopheles. So vector-borne diseases for Colorado, um, put it on that. We can put that one to bed and not worry about that, um, which is good. What parts of the United States should be worrying about those? Oh, well, in that case, um, <laughs> California has a real risk for that. Um, the border in Texas, down in Galveston, in Florida, all those southern states with a lot of humidity and, and heat, those are all areas that are going to be at risk for and are already at risk for, as it, as it turns out. And Puerto Rico is, is um, very much seriously at risk for dengue. It's, it's endemic there. They have epidemics and chikungunya is there and Zika is there. So... Um, those are serious problems in the rest of the country. And to be, just to clarify, you're talking in the southern border of the United States and in the um, Caribbean, those Correct. are the mosquito-borne diseases, whereas the tick-borne diseases are more north, in the northeast. northeast of the United right. States. Right. Actually, they're northeast, but they're moving west. Wow. So, so we're already kind of watching climate change essentially set the stage for the spread of vector-borne disease to novel populations, right? The other thing we like to we, we mention on climate change a lot is is this its role as kind of a threat multiplier. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but notice that region that you mentioned, the Caribbean, Florida, the southern coast of the United States, these right. are all places that are 
getting hit with hurricanes and tropical right. storms fairly frequently. So guess what happens when you have a hurricane and your house is destroyed? Who's got screens and sleeping inside, right? So that's a, a real serious consequence of, of sort of these um, natural disasters and the hurricanes. And you can see an increase in not only vector-borne diseases, but other infectious diseases. Right now in Mozambique, they have a terrible outbreak of cholera after they got hit with that cyclone. So um, when we think about uh, big disasters and disruption of infrastructure, we also think about the mosquito population gets disrupted. And again, remember these guys, the mosquitoes are out there to, to make more of them. And uh, if there's water and there's people, there's fighting yeah, going on. Especially more people you know, outside Side. exposed yeah, after, exactly. after these events. Right. So Dr. Rochford, I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you, how can we address climate change more broadly? I think, how do we address it more broadly? Part of it is educating people to the risk of climate change, right? And, and again, I, that's where I, I feel much more, A, I know a lot more about health, so I'm not an astrophysicist and I'm not a math modeler, but I can understand disease processes. So to me, understanding and helping how disease uh, can be affected by climate change is actually pretty important for us to address the broader question because it's affecting us now. Again, we can go back to the Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico and see evidence of, of increased disease, uh, infectious disease, vector-borne diseases then. Um, but then for the future, how do we start mitigating these risks, right? And that's, um, that's what we have to do. But I hope that people kind of get a wake-up call that this is now. This isn't um, anywhere in the future. And again, if we look at this this horrible um, in Mozambique, and I'm, I'm planning to travel there in, in November, it wiped out an entire um, city, right? And then cholera is now uh, increasing and, and rampant in that uh, because of the outbreak of the destruction of infrastructure. And, and so how do we help mitigate a, a community? And, and I was reading a great article about um, the national park there um, served as a, a resource for soaking up the water, the excess water that came in. And so thinking about how we um, integrate conservation for land conservation that might mitigate the effects of these extreme weather events. And I thought that was a very interesting kind of intersection that I hadn't appreciated before. Colorado, we're going to have to worry about that because we're going to have extreme weather events. We've had them already, like in Boulder, where we had that uh, flash floods. Right, and that's going to destroy uh, infrastructure. So, how do we help? If we know we're going to have extreme weather, and don't say it's once in a hundred years, what do we do to to help with that? Um, but I don't think we'll have the will to help with it if we don't understand that it's a problem. It's interesting that, especially in developed countries like the United States, we're so dependent on infrastructure that as soon as we take that away we're almost more vulnerable than a community that didn't have it in the first place because we're not used to have to function without that infrastructure in place. Well, that's, that's kind of an interesting um, question about that. Like, how do we think about who's vulnerable, right? So I think that's a... I think about, like, in Colorado, let's, let's bring it back home, right? And if we think about... Um, my family's from here originally, and my mom would tell me that Sloan's Lake never froze. I was always frozen. She'd always went ice skating there. And um, nobody in Denver used to need air conditioning, right? It just wasn't a, a, a norm. And now um, all the new homes have air conditioning, right? So we use a lot of resources for it. But air conditioning is important. What if we have a wildfire? If you live in a house with air conditioning, it's not going to be as problematic as if you're in a house that it's a heat wave and you don't have air conditioning, and there's a fire, and poor air pollution, and you've got respiratory problems, right? So um, I think that how do we help the vulnerable? We talk about that, and, and thinking about the word equity, how do we distribute the risk 
across the populations equal, right? And um, that equal distribution of risk is not there right now. So the poor likely don't have air conditioning. Um, they don't have a place to uh, escape uh, poor air quality. A lot of, I think half of our schools in Denver area don't have air conditioning in them. So, I mean, those are the things we should think about even in our own community at this time. We kind of try to give people that are, that are listening a, a semblance of an action that they can take to have an effect on climate change. What advice or, or piece of action do you have for them? Call your congressperson. <laughs> I mean, I think we need to, to, to say that we're, we care about this. To me, that's the most important thing. The, the, we have our own individual impact. I bought myself my own electric car, so I, I try to minimize my uh, use of my, reduce my carbon footprint. And I think that if we all, you know, it's the, if we all reduce our carbon footprint as much as possible, that's why I said with the air conditioning, I think about, like, should I really use this air conditioning? And does it make sense? And uh, minimizing that, that carbon footprint is probably one of the most important things. But for us to sort of raise our voices and say we're concerned and we need to do something and we need um, a national action on this, I think, is important for everybody to, to do. As citizens, we can all do those things, right? How about uh, for students, for scientists, for professionals, what advice do you have for them to get involved with climate change? How do well, we train them? That's a great question. Training for students. Um, it's a point dear to my heart. Um, first of all is, is, is bringing a, a group of students to educate them about the issues about climate change. And thinking about this, you know, one of the other things that I've learned in diving into this, again, I have a, actually my PhD is in biochemistry, so in molecular biology, which I'm a long ways away from that. We're lifelong learners as academics. But I've learned a lot about sort of the science behind climate change so that when people um, dismiss some of the data, I can sort of speak from a sense of a citizen scientist, right? I know enough about looking at that data to inform myself about that. But um, that next generation, your generation, needs to not only know the health side, but you need to understand it's sort of a, it's a really multidisciplinary field, and I think that that's kind of exciting too. But what I've also learned is we speak different languages, right? A public health professional wants to think about um, how do we uh, put an intervention within a community and work with that, right? A medical doctor wants to think about how do I save this one person, very narrow. Um, the astrophysicist or the, the person who's studying modeling is looking on dimensions of scale. Um, so it's we're, we're speaking all science, but all different types of science, different scales, different approaches, and I think it's really important for us to, to teach students to understand how to be more broad um, in their understanding of different approaches and getting those languages down um, so that we can address the problems. So we should all have some uh, level of understanding of science so that we can make informed decisions. Hey everyone, this is Jake. So as you may remember at the beginning of our interview, Dr. Rochford is the director of the CU Consortium for Climate Change and Health. We are amidst a, an ongoing conversation about what the scope of the consortium actually is. Uh, seeing as many of our listeners might be interested in getting involved in the climate change and health world, we wanted to share some of that conversation with you. So I'll turn it back over to Cam asking Dr. Rochford about what the future of the consortium is. Have a listen. We have you here as, as the director for the CU Consortium for Climate Change and Health. Uh, we want to ask you a couple questions about it, really just kind of starting with what is your vision for this for this consortium? consortium. Well, that's that's a great question, and, it, and it's an evolving vision. And I would say um, 
This consortium came together from a group of faculty and um, uh, students um, that were very concerned about the impacts of climate and health and sort of said, how do, we, how do we work together to answer this question? And in doing that, this is where we've learned about how we approach these questions and people at Boulder or NCAR or um, our other community partners at NOAA um, really sort of saying, well, what are the problems and how can we address it? And we're still, I think, in, in evolving. Um, I see us as a resource for the community, uh, as a place for people to come to to get information, a uh, network of, of people that are interested in the practice of, of these topics so that if people need that resource, we know who to tap them into. But moving forward, um, I think that that's sort of the tough question. The educational component is important, right? How do we educate the next generation of scientists um, to tackle these problems and what are the tools we can provide for them? Um, and then how do we do research on these, right? So, and what's the right questions to address and what can we address? And so um, we're thinking about, I think about vector-borne diseases and what we can do. Um, there's groups thinking about chronic kidney disease. We think about um, uh, air pollution problems. So we're sort of trying to, trying to sort of say where do we fit as moving forward? But I think uh, importantly, we're um, a bunch of crazy um, dedicated scientists who do this in our spare time. And, and I hate to say that we do it in our spare time, but, but we do it in our spare time because um, there's not a lot of research money to tackle this directly. Right. And I've always wondered if that's partly a function of the interdisciplinary nature of the consortium. Nobody really owns it. You know, there's people of so many different fields, which right. is a, a really cool aspect. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, that's the fun part, right? I really love learning about... Um, what other people are doing and how they address the question. But I, I give you an example of why it's nice to have people from different backgrounds come together. Um, Chris Karnakis is a professor at um, CU Boulder, and he was looking at this thing about, um, he saw this article on CO2 levels and, and how much can we absorb, right? Is, is CO2 bad for us? Like if it gets to 600 parts per million, is this bad? And he found this study published in um, New York and uh, by scientists in New York and sort of reached out and said, well, is this something we could test, right? How would we do this, right? And how would we model this? And so um, we haven't done anything with that yet, but it, it's to me, it's an example of how we could bring our different skill sets as a problem comes to four to sort of tackle them. And, and, and I think there's not many places that can do this. I would say one of the things that makes Colorado a great place and the this front range here especially, um, is that we all play nice with each other. Uh, and, I, and if anybody's an academic, they'll understand that. But I, I think that um, we've come together as a group that, that sort of thinks the problems are bigger than our, who we are. And uh, I think we can work well to tackle that. And the West has an opportunity to sort of lead the way. That's um, somebody who's lived in the East Coast. I probably shouldn't add my bias there. but <laughs> No, that's fine. Is, is there anyone else who isn't at the table currently who you think should be at the table? Well, um, I think our two students here, Cam and Jake, are at the table. <laughs> yeah, but I would love to have more students at the table. I think that that's the thing we're really missing, and I, I would encourage any student to um, reach out to us and, and uh, join us and, and um, find out what we do and what they can do to help us. Yeah, I think we uh, can use all the help we can get. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Two is not enough. Yeah. Also, we think of, I mean, who is, who is very effective at working for no money and very hard? Students. Students. <laughs> I know. <laughs> exactly. Any other questions? 
think so. How do windmills cause cancer? (laughs) 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 I will say, I will say about um, that. That's why we need citizen scientists, though, right? So that people can say that's no. Yeah. Hot hot mic, careful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Dr. Rochford, thank you so much for for sitting down with us, and uh, we're looking forward to seeing how the consortium evolves. I'm Um, looking forward to that as well, and thanks for your help with it. Of course. For our listeners, that is it for this episode of Attention Humans. Please check out the website for our show notes. Otherwise, we hope you'll tune in next time. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Attention Humans, the podcast of the University of Colorado Consortium for Climate Change and Health. We unpack the human health dimensions of climate change and emphasize the urgent need for all of us to get involved. We want to thank Dr. Rosemary Rochford and Dr. C.C. Sorensen for their mentorship on this project. Ellen McFarlane and Matt Cook for technical support. Cake for the jam and theme music. Our awesome guests for sharing their expertise. And you, our listeners, for paying attention. See you next time.